0: Hello there. Welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. It's Monday the 29th of March. How are you doing? Thank you for hitting on the button. appreciate it. Hope you're well. Hope you had a solid weekend and hope you're enjoying Monday's liberation in the UK. If you're here or in England at least, can now meet. <laughs> I'm always sketchy on the details, but I think you can meet six people outside, can you? Or two households, even in people's gardens and stuff. So that's a positive. That's uh, good. Get, try and reignite that social muscle. Hope you enjoyed the sport over the weekend as well. Big win for Dillian White in the boxing in Gibraltar and a big win for Francis Ngannou in the match we talked about last week with Gareth A. Davis for Sky Sports. He beats Tipe Miocic, the legendary heavyweight in UFC, by a pretty exhilarating and and brutal knockout in the second round there. So Ngannou, the Cameroonian, with this wonderful story of a way that he Crossed Africa, traversed the country, took on various identities, different passports to get to Europe. Spain initially spent time in prison, then got to Paris, France, and has really developed a a huge story in following behind him across the world. So he's the now UFC champion. Could he meet uh, Deontay Wilder? Could he meet Dillian White in a crossover match? We shall we shall see. But thank you for hitting on the button. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Big thank you um, to them for their support. It was great to see Jason and his boy Dylan on the weekend bumped into, them, I think it was Saturday, outside the Bang Olufsen store around the corner from me in Cheltenham. Obviously, it's not been open, but they were there doing some uh, deliveries or looking at the equipment or something, I believe. And Jason and his boy, good to meet his boy, has been playing for the, their team, AFC Cheltenham. The football team, they're back training this week, I think, Tuesday night. So good luck to them with that. And uh, his boy's got a new little fiesta, chilly red and black, learning to drive. So... Very good to see them and appreciate the support as ever from Jason. Uh, thank you. And he'll probably enjoy this podcast as well about Man United, actually. Uh, remember, plan if you're looking to optimize your immunity, the vitamin D should be arriving in the UK this week. The natural stuff as the sun hits, it's going to be 70 degrees Fahrenheit, I think 20, 21 degrees Celsius. Um, I still got Fahrenheit on my phone from being a kid. My parents used it. And also I lived in the States. <laughs> I'm always operating with Fahrenheit, quite like it, uh, the bigger numbers. Um, but yeah, so that's coming. So that'd be natural source of vitamin D with the sunlight. But if you would like to uh, optimize your immunity, I take Immune Complete from cytoplan.co.uk, a company my father has worked for as a consultant, my father being Dr. Mark Draper, who is a GP practitioner and a micronutritionist as well, particularly engrossed and engaged with the concepts of, of selenium and zinc trace elements in the soil, how they seem to have depleted and perhaps the effects on our immune system are corrosive. So we, well, I take Immune Complete 2 from them as an adult male. Immune Complete 1 if you're a menstruating woman the, is the one for you as a multivitamin. But, of course, I do a range of all the standard supplements, including fish oil, which I take, glucosamine from time to time for the joints as well. But if you go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, you can get a thirty percent discount and then ten percent thereafter with the code DRAPER10R, the Draper ten R. The D R A P E R, my last name, all capital letters, and the numbers ten. So, so the numerals one zero, capital letter R. So it's Draper ten R. Right onto the podcast. I'm a Manchester United fan, fortunate to have come of age really in the Sir Alex Ferguson Halcyon days of the '90s and the team kind of swept all before them, or right, I only won a couple of Champions League titles, but 13 domestic Premier League titles. And yet, since Sir folks have retired in 2013, been more challenging time. So it's a catch-up with journalist friend of mine who covers Manchester United, writes in the national press in the UK, including The Sun, and has a fantastic Twitter feed covering the team and everything else. It's Tom McDermott, and he gives an insight here, whether the club is making progress, how we know whether the manager we know it's the right manager could it be the second coming of Sir Alex because when you peer back in time and I'll reference a book actually from Jamie McGill that I'm reading at the moment about the 1980s era even when Sir Alex Ferguson came in in the tail end of 86 it wasn't always clear that that success was going to follow despite what he'd achieved already at Aberdeen in Scotland really uh breaking up the old firm's dominance of Scottish football. But it wasn't always clear that Manchester United were going to get the glory they ended up getting in the 90s. So, yeah, we're trying to figure out what are the signs of progress in a league when, yeah, United sit second, but again, a distant second to the uh, swashbuckling, ticky-tacky, fluid, false nine, um, Manchester City, st- uh, steered by Pep Guardiola, the mercurial coach. So, yeah, are we making progress? How do we know? Here he is then, fantastic journalist, Tom McDermott. Tom McDermott, welcome back to the podcast. How are you?
1: Yeah, I was thinking early on, Ed, uh, I think it must have been early lockdown last year when we when we last <laughs> spoke in the pod, podcast format anyway. Surreal, um, isn't it? Yeah, really surreal. Really, really strange and um, it's great to be on and, and great to chat to you as always.
0: Yeah, we had a, well, it was a great spring last year, wasn't it? So there were sort of mixed emotions at the time. It was quite nice, in a way, to have reduced work output. And people thought it was like a two-week thing, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, dragged on a bit, it's fair to say. But at least you're having a meeting today, the potential to get back into the office. It feels like things are moving. I mean, fortunately, I say fortunately, I've been able to get into the office working at Sky Sports News throughout, albeit with with good measures and testing at work. So it's been, I think, really lucky. But are you looking forward to just that that sort of, mixing and socializing and, and being able to talk to people outside of teams calls and zooms <laughs> <laughs> I, I think
1: so i think i think part of me will or has enjoyed if, if that's the right word the sort of being able to work from home um mm. but, you know to be honest you can you cannot beat that sort of interaction even if it's you know social distancing talking to people face face to face and having that bit of i guess that that kind of Camaraderie with with your colleagues, your teammates, and, and whoever it is, and really looking forward to at least spending part of the week when we're allowed and safe to, safe to do so back in the office and, mm. and back with people and, and talking about things. Because I think that as good as this is, and it will change business and how people operate, I think you can't beat that that sort of face to face or face behind a mask contact. <laughs> yeah, face behind a mask. Yeah, it's funny, isn't
0: it? Because I think people have definitely found it. Um, kind of eye-opening in a sense of these perfunctory meetings that people might travel to London or Birmingham or Manchester like for two hours and have a meeting for 10 minutes and then leave. They realise that actually that doesn't necessarily need to be done. But I was speaking to a a mate who works for a university, the University of Wolverhampton. He was saying how meetings have sort of increased exponentially, I think he says by at least 60% or so. But he says haven't really become more productive he says the problem is that a lot of those are sort of conversations you'd have just to grease the wheels in passing where you'd stop at a desk and have a word and now people have to schedule official teams invites and send all these emails to then invite you on and then talk and he said he's looking forward to sort of losing some of, of that kind of um, extra meeting.
1: From a journalistic point of view Ed and one for you I guess before we get into it and one question I've asked a few people is do you Think that it will replace completely sort of going out and meeting stars within their particular field and discussing them do you think it'll be maybe even a cost-saving exercise for for, for some organizations
0: i think there potentially is an element there i think it's it totally depends again on the parameters of of who the interviewee is and how you can access them i think there's definitely a texture and a quality that's unrivaled in terms of in-person stuff and there's different aspects to that, It's a really good question. I think, for example, when I've been doing some MMA stuff, when the first lockdown kicked in, I did some boxing interviews, some features for the website, both video and written, and some MMA stuff. And actually, if you're interviewing, suddenly, when people become very au okay with the technology, so you have fighters, American fighters who've got Zoom on their phone, you can just send them a link and they'll they'll put the phone on and you can do an interview. And we can put it on Sky Sports' YouTube page or wherever and then write a written piece off it. You think, well, that's a great way to get content because Sky doesn't have the time or resources to send me out for a 10 minute interview with a UFC star or, or whoever it might be a boxer, but actually beyond that, I think, there is a lack of, uh, of rapport and, and texture. And it's easy, things like this, I found the Zoom ones have been absolutely fine and enabled me to keep the podcast going, which is great. And it's easy with people like you who I've met and spoken to and spent time with, and actually we've done it on numerous occasions. I think it's more difficult when you have a, a new guest on the podcast when you're straight into this sort of <laughs>
1: yeah. Zoom
0: where you've got someone in your face and then you have to start <laughs> talking. And, you know, that's a skill in itself to open them up. But also I think press conferences are one that you'll be aware of obviously, as a journalist covering the football that, there is a sort of very much marshaled kind of order and sequencing to it now where you have to answer a question. And it's like this voice comes out from Zoom and the manager sits there and has to answer questions. But clearly it's very controlled. And I think you do miss sometimes, if you're going to be the voice of the fans, putting them on the spot a little bit, probing, because they can just meet you now, can't they, on Zoom? And say, next yeah. question. No, I'm Joe sure. blogs from the Daily Telegraph next or whatever. So I'm I think...
1: Yeah, I'm sure some of them are tactical ed. I'm sure some of them can hear you when they, th- when they say they can't.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I mean. But I mean, I think from do you, from your perspective, I think that would be important to come back, is the ability to actually dig a bit deeper in person that you can't do from afar. And I think it's easier to get fobbed off a little bit, isn't it? And I, I find that interesting watching the Prime Minister stuff that he does with journalists on Zoom, that I think sometimes he can sort of misinterpret or reinterpret what they've been asked to sort of make it slightly smoother in terms of the answer, where maybe you couldn't do that in person, it'd be a bit, bit more
1: awkward. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that it's almost like that email that you can, you know, you can send to somebody and kind of put to the bottom of the, the queue, isn't it? This, this Zoom, it's like a mm. face-to-face version of that. You can kind of, you know, did I quite hear that? Did I not hear it? Can I give them a full answer? And like you say, there's there's a there's a, a, a certain set number of questions you can ask in this format, especially when you when you're speaking to Premier League managers and, and other stars. Yeah, I think we might have just momentarily lost it. So, yeah. Been, oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yep. You are back, mate? You are back? All good. Um, I was saying that I, I'm not. It'd be interesting to, to to find out how many Premier League managers and sports stars across all or different fields prefer this kind of format, and those that you know would like to be grilled, so to speak, face to face.
0: Yeah, and it's also this sort of official aspect of it, isn't it? I think when you're at home and you you have to make a phone call, you, you're pivoting from maybe being with your kids or whatever, and then suddenly doing a Zoom interview with an athlete. There's a a positive aspect to that, that it's easy, but there's also a sort of sense of a lack of balance. It's sometimes quite exciting to go out and spend time with with an athlete. And also, as a journalist, you build a sort of long-term rapport, don't they, with you writing a lot about Manchester United, the more you meet footballers in person. I think there is a an elevated connection that maybe stands you in good stead and you build a relationship over over years which is maybe harder to do on zoom when people are just clicking a button chat to you for five minutes click another button chat to someone else for five minutes without doubt 100 percent. yeah couldn't agree more oh good stuff well let's uh let's get on to our shared love it's, it's funny it's coming up to almost three years since we did the world cup podcasts with chris scudder which Not was beautiful. awesome
1: yeah but, yeah yeah, he's got a book. He's got. He tells me he's got a book coming out. Ed, actually next year that I, I won't um, ruin completely for him. I think he's happy for it to be kind of tease slightly. I, I, I don't know the name, but it combines World Cup, um, World Cups that he's attended from a from a journalistic point of view and and a bit of a travel guide alongside it. So that's one for the listeners to listen out for. Maybe we could get him on next yeah. year.
0: Yeah, Chris Scudder, formerly of, of Sky News for a long time, and he, he actually has been to, I think, all the World Cups since 1990 or something like that. He's, He's been got to... some
1: great stories.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet he has. Um, you, uh, before we get into the United sort of um, stupor and try to work out what's going on, which is, is always as clearer of the mud as, as ever in terms of ascertaining progress. But England, are you looking forward to this international break? They're not the most exciting games from an English perspective, are they?
1: No, I think you and I spent time reminiscing last year on a, on a, on a previous podcast about uh, Manchester United and, and going through the years and the great teams and the players are gone. I could always remember growing up, and I know that you and I are of a similar age, mm. um, although I'm probably slightly older looking at me. I think uh, you're slightly younger, uh, actually. I think I'm 40 <laughs> this summer. So, well, yeah, it says January is mine, my, my 40th as well. Um, same school year then. But, yes. Um, my, my, dad, my dad used to take sports night for me um, back in the day, and I remember getting up before primary school years and and racing downstairs and watching the England games. And a lot of them at that time were friendlies. Mm. And, you you know, you look at the number of fixtures now, and I think because of the amount of football, and this isn't just international football that's played, I think that the interest has has been diluted slightly um, Mm. due to the number of games. Now, from an England point of view and Gareth Southgate, I think at the last World Cup, actually, Stage one was was complete, and the fact that I think he helped us reconnect or reconnect a lot of the nation back with the national team. I think before that, yeah, there was um people were a bit disillusioned with it, perhaps down to, to poor performances, perhaps down to too much football, perhaps having more of an interest in Champions League and what on what their clubs were doing. But I think part one, regardless of England getting to the semi final, he did. But I think now with these fixtures coming on, yeah, perhaps people have had not enough, but people are a, a little tired of them. But mm. I think there is slightly more interest than there was, say, in the build-up to the last World, World Cup because of what Gareth Southgate is trying to build and because of, of you know, the, the players England have got and, and and that reconnection that I mentioned. So I don't look forward to it as much as, as a major tournament or as when perhaps my, my, my club side, Manchester United, are playing. But I, I, I do have it. It has kind of sort of revitalised my interest, I think, over the last few years. Yeah.
0: And often it's a bit like you mentioned the Champions League and the plans to expand that. I remember ninety eight, ninety nine when, when United were playing Barcelona in the group stage and exhilarating games. I think the problem with sometimes the expansion of the fixture list, it can be determined by the sort of the excitement of, of the matchups. And and I guess for England you've got San Marino, Albania and, and Poland. And San Marino and Poland seem to be pretty much sort of ever-present opponents yeah. for England down the years. Um, but it's yeah, maybe not as exciting as a game against Germany or, or France or Spain. So it's, it's interesting.
1: You do get, though, don't you? I think you do get, if you compare that to the Champions League, there, you mean you do get some games in the Champions League, especially the group stages, the sort of, you know, game. Yeah. And the last couple of games that aren't, there's not always a lot riding on them. And they have been criticized more recently over the last couple of years. And, and a revamp has been mentioned, hasn't it, and talked about, I think. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the next stage the Champions League takes, because obviously, great memories of the, of the old format when the Champions League was, was first introduced. Um, but now, perhaps, yeah, maybe it does need need to be looked at slightly because there are certain games, and it, you know, it's not like international football as all. Well, but there are certain games within the Champions League format that, even the knockout stage, sometimes after the group mm. stage, can be a little tedious.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the expansion idea from the, from the. UEFA FIFA and, and everything in perspective for the World Cup and the Champions League is to get more teams there to get more attention on it but the problem is that then there's a, a consequence that the qualifying process becomes easier and less jeopardy involved in it particularly for you know a decent-sized nation like England or a decent-sized club hopefully like Manchester United although we're no longer in the Champions League and we've got this yeah. big Gr- Granada match to look forward to in the Europa League which is which is interesting um, but it's uh, yeah no it's definitely a, a sort of a double-edged sword to the whole process and I think Do you,
1: you think there are more too many teams in the Champions League, Ed? Or, I, think, you...
0: I think it had a prestige to it, didn't it? And I think it's not really, it's a sort of it's mis, misnamed, isn't it, in a sense because it's not a league of champions anymore which people have said for years, but it seems ever, ever more relevant. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when Manchester United won the treble, and I'm sure there'll be a listener will pull me up on this, but I think the year before that, if I'm right, 98, Manchester United didn't win the Premier League no, so was Arsenal, wasn't it? Yeah, It was Arsenal, wasn't it? And and one of the great sides Wenger built. So, Manchester United, when they won the treble, the treble would have been <laughs> wouldn't have happened if if we were playing purely by just having champions in the Champions true. League. True, true. I I think there's um, and it'll be interesting. And again, I'm sure somebody will tell us how many winners of the Champions League have come from the previous year. They're finishing second or third in their domestic leagues. That'll be an interesting thing to find out as well. But yeah. I think there's only room for more than just the champions. But I think that there does appear to be a lot of uh, football um, at the moment. Maybe it's this, this, the climate and and with the pandemic and COVID. But um, I think there's always room to to improve things. And I can't see them reducing the team numbers. So it'd be interesting to see what they do to make it more exciting and and you know giving it that lift it had in the early nineties. I think.
0: Yes yeah definitely so it's interesting you allude to that actually. You had Colin Hendry on who was just rejoicing because he's been looking after his poorly mum in the northeast of Scotland the former right. Blackburner Man City player he was sort of just celebrating the amount the, the sort of change in the football calendar to accommodate the pandemic and having Premier League games on pretty much wall-to-wall and football to watch he said was a, a great tonic for him to to have something every day to to look forward to and I think that's true but I think I will look forward to an indicator of a return to somewhat normality will be a sort of more normalised football structure where you get to build up to certain key days and then react to them because it feels at the moment that we've been rolling on from one Premier League game to another, which has made it hard to chart, I suppose, progress because you you feel like you're rolling on, which must be difficult for the clubs. But I don't know about you, but we're getting up to eight years now since Alex Ferguson left, which is phenomenal, isn't it? And it just feels like after that big initial fall-off from being champions, we've recovered some ground, but it's unclear whether we're kind of progressing in a, in a linear direction back towards the top or whether we're just sort of plateauing again as a, a club and we're, we're finding it difficult to make that last leap back to, to the sort of, I guess, upper echelons alongside Man City and, and previously Liverpool. What, what do you make of it? It's, it's hard, isn't it, to, to, to diagnose it? I know you're always throwing out questions on, on Twitter <laughs> trying to get some insight from other people's perspective because you get some, some, some that you can see from stats where we are, we're second in the table, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the emotion of it.
1: It's such a difficult, as you, as you say there, and this is not a cop-out answer, but it is such a difficult one to judge simply because how much football has changed and things that, you know, go on off the pitch have altered since Alex Ferguson's um, retirement. I think that Solskjaer, if we take the existing United setup, I think Solskjaer has certainly improved the side year on year. I think behind the scenes culture has improved as well. There seems to be, Gary Neville always on, on, on Super Sunday one year always said, that, I'm looking at a team now that I like, whereas in previous years when Sir Alex Ferguson left, I wasn't mm-hmm. sure that I quite liked them all. So I think again, a bit like Southgate, the connection between the United fans and the team is a lot better than it was. Now, if we compare points at this stage of the season this year to last year, again, Solskjaer has improved. Second in the league as well would would suggest an improvement. But four semi-finals over the last sort of 12 to 18 months and that failure to be able to, to kick on and, and, and win something is in danger, I think, if they don't go all the way in the Europa League this year, is in danger of, of hampering that good figling and that progress. I personally have doubts as to whether Solskjaer can do that simply because although he had a record of success at Mulder, otherwise he hasn't really done it. We, we know he had a disappointing time at Cardiff, but in trophies as a manager... It's a lot different to, you're a player. He's very, you know, he's got a great catalogue of trophies. He's one of the most decorated players, certainly one of the most decorated Norwegians mm. we've had over here. But as a manager, can he deliver a trophy for Manchester United? Because I think if he did win the Europa League this year and the United finished second, I think most Manchester United fans would say, fantastic, brilliant, we're heading in the right direction. And not only that, he's got a trophy to show for it. I think if Manchester United finish second this Premier League season, which I do believe they will do, but don't win the Europa League, I think that people will look and think, well, he hasn't won the Europa League. He failed in three or four the semi-finals. Yeah. Chelsea have had half a season off because they got rid of Lampard. Liverpool have had a season even they wouldn't have foreseen. They'll improve next year with Van Dijk. Um, Arsenal, Tottenham, Everton, all these other teams... Leicester, we can't forget, will push the top four again. And, of course, Manchester City are going nowhere. So there are forces maybe outside of Solskjaer's control that have worked in his favour this year, that if he doesn't get a trophy to back up what he's saying, could, I think, hamper him. And then my obvious concern, and I no doubt we may come on this, is what impact that has and that message to the players. Because somebody like Bruno Fernandes, who has been phenomenal and involved in all those assists and all those goals, if he eventually doesn't see United going that extra yard and, and winning a trophy, he mm. in 12 to 18 months, think, you know what? I need trophies to back up my sort of performance and, and put in my trophy cabinet, and, and I'm not going to do that at Manchester United. So, very difficult question to answer. I'm not sure I quite answered it. <laughs> no, no, but, I know what you mean. But, yeah. but Solskjaer at the moment, yes, progress on and off the pitch, but I really think he needs a trophy sooner rather than later, and that's why the disappointment to losing against Leicester in the FA Cup was uh, was was really hard to take, I think, for a lot of United fans.
0: Yeah, it really hurt, didn't it? And I think, I don't know, what do you make of Solskjaer's comments? I think it was pre that match, talking about how trophies aren't a barometer of a success, it's your league position and your points and your progression, which I guess works in favour for him. It's a convenient argument at the moment. I just think that sort of rational, sort of bank manager's approach to football is, is misleading because actually football's based on emotion. It's based on the joy of watching your team succeed. And I think, you know, when we were growing up, it's a different time, but the cup final was uh, almost in a way in, in, on a parity with the league. And I know that it was always the best team was the team that won the league because that was over a period of time. But there was a maverick kind of joy and appreciation of teams who won the cup. And actually, for our recent history for United, we always charted that progress through cups that then led to the title, wasn't it? It was the FA Cup 90, the Cup winners Cup 91, League Cup 92. And then you got there to the, the league in 93. So it felt like you needed that, build up but also just independently you've got great memories that attach you to the club from winning those mm-hmm. trophies I feel is he being a bit sort of facetious there because football only exists based on the fans emotion doesn't it and their you know their joy at, at trophy wins
1: yeah I mean again difficult one to analyze because football has changed I think if we take Manchester United managers since Alex Ferguson retired uh, David Moyes was sacked when it was mathematically impossible to get Champions League Louis van Gaal won the FA Cup, but I think finished fifth that season and missed out on Champions League football. These two were sacked. Mourinho, in his final year, was sacked just before Christmas, was, I think, oversaw one of United's worst ever starts. And really, if you compare his behaviour to, then to how he was at other clubs he'd left, it looked like United certainly weren't going to head in the Champions League that season. So, for me, if you're a business owner or, or, or from a business point of view, the Glazers, they'll look at Solskjaer and think the Champions League is where the money is. He's got United. I don't think we're speaking out so he should get United into the Champions League this season. They will, from a business point of view, think absolutely fine. From a supporter's point of view and the kind of match going reds and there's lots of comments I don't know, on your Twitter the other day from people who've been to, to United over the years, they remember the day out. They remember even if they're not there watching it with their family on television, they remember... Um, winning goals that won trophies that's what Manchester United and football supporters at that level when you support a team like Manchester United yeah. Uh, expect now I don't think Manchester United are unrealistic to think that they expect the champion uh, the Premier League title every year but at the moment they're not quite getting to finals either and, and creating those memories you mentioned games then in the 90s I remember the 1-0 defeat to Everton uh, in the Ninety-five.
0: But, yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, the Bruce's hamstring on the line. I think it was ride right out knocked in, and Bruce couldn't get across. And yeah. things like that. And around that era, there was a, a feeling that even though United didn't win it that year, I think that was a year, another trophyless year for them. There was yeah, that what
0: is horrible. Couple of weeks, wasn't it? Because Black beat it, it the title, just about. Yeah,
1: it yeah. It was horrible, but you got the sense that United would come back again, and uh, 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 if not win something, get very close to it. And and we saw Shah, there's there's still that element. Uh, element of doubt so to, to ask the question I think from a business point of view this year Solskjaer has or will deliver a top four finish which will keep them happy if especially if we're going back at the example of Moyes and uh, Van Hal. but I think from a supporters point of view they're desperate for a trophy they're desperate for the Premier League but I think what would keep them happy this year is the Europa League or the FA Cup but unfortunately that can no longer be.
0: Yeah, it's funny, it's funny where you chart progress from because when, when Mourinho got sacked, clearly it's it's better than where we were there because we are second in the table. But Mourinho won the Europa League and the League Cup in 2017, which is four years ago, which is quite scary. Again, the, the quick passage of time, particularly I mean, a, a, quick, quick one,
1: FU, a quick one for you. If, if Mourinho wins the, the Europa League, uh, sorry, the League Cup for Spurs, yeah. will he stay in the position? Because his first year United, I think he missed out on Champions League but qualified because mm. he won the Europa League. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Will a, will a trophy, I think, was it Ramos, the last trophy? they Ramos, it, yeah. yeah. Will that keep the Spurs fans happy? You know, I, is that progress for them?
0: Yeah, I mean, Tottenham have got into top four, but I think that you know, there's a perception that for us, even growing up, I think Spurs being a big club was more associated with the players they had. So for us as kids, it was Gascoigne, Lineker, people of of that ilk, and then Teddy Sheringham and Nick Barmby. They were sort of well-known England internationals who you associate with. But I look, you look back at it, and I put this on Twitter, not as a, a jab or a criticism, but just to put context to the Europa League defeat for Tottenham against Dino Zagreb, which was spectacular to lose from 2-0 yeah. up in the first leg. But they haven't won the FA Cup for 30 years. They haven't won the league for 50 years, and they've won two league cups. I think uh, it's, it was late 90s, and then there was yeah. 2008, wasn't it? They beat Chelsea in the league cup, as you say, under the Ramos but that's not a lot. I mean, that's an incredible shortage of trophies. So I think for Tottenham, it would be big, albeit to win another League Cup. I don't. Yeah, it's very difficult to know, as you say, with the pandemic year. But Manchester City have acted like it's a normal yeah. year to know, to know where you're going. And, and with with Jose, it's like he's saying that he wants to be more front foot and the players are being more cautious, which seems strange, doesn't it? Because they've got a lot of attacking players, so that would be the case. Maybe it's a, a lack of confidence. Um, but I guess it's a similar question for Tottenham as it would be for Manchester United. is Who do you look at? To come in, um, a manager I admire that's been around the block for a long time is Carlo Ancelotti. But clearly, he's got mm-hmm. a work in progress at Everton, hasn't he? It's not an obvious answer to, to who you bring in. But I think Tottenham, I think a trophy, a particularly beating Man City in the League Cup final. If he could mastermind a victory over Pep, that would be extra significant, wouldn't it? I feel. Do you, do you agree with that? That that's a different.
1: Yeah, prospect? I think I think you're right. I think, yeah, I mean the, the the what was it the second week of December or something like that, they were playing. Spur, uh, they were playing Liverpool, and I think they were top of the league or pretty close to top of the league. And at that point, I usual s- story. I put a tweet out that will come back and bite me, but I thought that if Mourinho could could avoid defeat there and sort of hang on to the top spot or second spot come the new year. I think that I thought they'd have a genuine ch- chance. Yeah. Harry Kane was playing well. Son was there. Um, he seemed to have a decent shape in and out of possession they were hard to beat they were scoring Mm. plenty of goals it looked like the kind of perfect storm as well with everything going on at other clubs Um, so their league position at the moment and their sort of drop from then to now is is a significant one and and a worrying one I think if you're a Tottenham fan but Wande Ramos, Trophy you, you know, is that how they judge the success? You know, Manchester United fans will tell you it's winning the league the owners may say it's qualifying for top four. They may not say that publicly, but, you know, from a financial point of view, that might tick all the boxes. Will Daniel Levy be satisfied with a trophy if he hasn't got Champions League football? Mm. It remains to be seen. And yeah, it's different it, across the yeah. league, isn't it? Because, you know, look, you look at someone like, a team like Burnley, who are, I think you probably say, fair to say, they an established Premier League team now. Um I've seen fans, I tweeted a month or two ago about the job Deich was doing. He's obviously very impressive again. Um, Quite a slow start to the season this season. But are there expectations just to remain in the Premier League every season? Or could they one year push a Europa League place? You know, it's it's hard to judge across the board.
0: League position, though, and and sort of practicality doesn't really sort of Ingrain itself on your memory, does it, Tom? When you think about it, I can remember Mourinho really winning those trophies. I can remember the FA Cup in 2016 but I don't really remember the seasons we came third or you know, oh, that was a good season because we we edged out Arsenal into fifth or something. Do you know what I mean?
1: But didn't they? But didn't wasn't the the argument towards the end of the Wenger era um, that you know, however many years he was there? Let's say we say it's fifteen years. I can't. I don't know I don't top of my head Wasn't it that out of fourteen out of the fifteen he qualified for the Champions League?
0: Yes. Yeah, there was a, there was oh, an argument about that I feel like I feel like qualifying for the Champions League only is good financially, but unless you've got a chance of winning the Champions League, it's almost irrelevant from a from a Absolutely. fan's perspective. Do well, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. David Mo- David Moyes at Everton. Yes. Yeah. You no, know, he, he managed. I think it was Villarreal they played, and and they, they had a great season. I think it was he was it 05 when Liverpool won the Champions League. It was around that time. Anyway. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. I think that. They, they work so hard, they play so well all season, I think they got knocked out in a qualifying round to Villarreal, you know. so
0: It's interesting you mentioned the, the Murillo era because uh, I've look, I actually looked at the league table because it feels like we're in a similar position now to 2017-18 when he got, you know, he, he, he sort of was very self-congratulatory about getting United to second in the table maybe typical so some would say, but we, we finished second on 81 points, four points clear of Tottenham in third. I've got it in front of me here. I'm not just remembering this. Uh, Man City were top on 100 points. And I don't think they're quite going to get 100 this time, City, but they're on 71 now with eight games left. So they could get into the 90s theoretically, especially they've won 25 out of the last 26 games. Um, and we could end up 29, so nine points, so 27 points to play for. So we could end up from 57 points to work out. We could get over 80. So it could be quite similar if it's a decent finish to that, but then he obviously got sacked the next season, so it's difficult to know. Do we do we believe in it? I suppose is the thing, Tom, isn't it? Do we see beyond the, the points tally? Do we see a kind of team coming together? Because it, it, one week you think there is, and then you, you watch the game against Leicester and think there isn't.
1: Yeah, I always go back to Liverpool under Klopp. Um, I think at a similar stage to probably where Solskjaer is now. I think they sold Coutinho um, for, for over 100 million. Pounds, I think that's right. Maybe 150,
0: I think it was one hundred and fifty, because they pretty much then split really? that yeah. over the over Allison and Van Dijk, didn't
1: they? Which and, the and, thing. Uh, and that's yeah, and that's the point. Ed. They they reinvested that money straight back into the squad. Um, I'm not suggesting Manchester United are going to sell a major player, but Liverpool pretty much gave Klopp what he wanted. Yes, they sold Coutinho and lost a great player, but they gave him what he wanted um, in terms of um, they needed a goalkeeper because they had one or two. Um, shall we say unfortunate episodes in big games with the keepers, and also they needed somebody who was commanding and could um, organise a defence. And they got Van Dyke, who just happens to be one of the best defenders, yeah. defenders in the world. And you've seen this year, although there's probably other things wrong with the, with the mm. setup that they've missed him. The trouble with Manchester United is, are, will they support Solskjaer either through a huge player sale like that, or will they go into the market, you know, off their own back, if you like? And, and support him and give him what he needs. I think that there are three or four positions at least that perhaps they don't need that absolute world-class player to come in. But you see, when you sign a player like Bruno Fernandes, the kind of impact that that these guys can have. And the Liverpool example is, is always a good one. And, it, and it, it's disappointing to hear from a Manchester United supporters point of view. But if you invest in the right way and give, give the manager kind of what he wants or what he needs, then even at United under Show, you've seen what can happen. And I just wonder with the backroom staff now at Old Trafford and the new setup with the technical director and, and and Darren Fletcher and so forth, whether they're saying to Ollie, look, we're backing you off the pitch. We're providing a great route for the academy and the talent that's coming through there to come yeah. through. But also, we'll help identify the best players in Europe. And not only that, we'll, we'll go out and try and secure one or two of them for you.
0: Yeah, it's funny because recruitment seems very scientific-based now on stats. And yet, it seemed a, you know an obvious thing that Van Dijk, when he was at Celtic, was a great player. But then he went to Southampton, almost like people wanted him to prove himself in the Premier League. And maybe we mm-hmm. jumped on that earlier. That would have been fantastic. But it, I'm reading a really interesting book, the one that you'd, you'd like. And actually, I'll send it to you and um, maybe okay. hit up the author. It's a guy called Jamie McGill. He's a lawyer by trade. He's I believe, from Altrincham, but he was a Manchester United fan. He's actually very candid in this book. He's called "Inglory Man United." He, he started supporting United when City went down, I think, in the early '80s. Right. And he charts. It was before the '83 cup cup um, run under Ron Atkinson. United won the FA uh-huh. Cup, but he goes through the Atkinson era. There was one great start to the season. I think '85, '86, where they won ten in a row. Then they brought Ferguson in when it petered out the next season. They obviously didn't win the league in '86. Then Ferguson, it sort of charts the ups and downs, the, the results, the, the the negative media. He's got extracts from the press, which I don't remember because I sort of started following the team at late eighties. But from a you know seven eight year old boy's perspective, yep. I wasn't as glued to it as maybe as I would be later on, and there wasn't as much resource to, to cover it as detail. But it, it sort of does that, and it's the feeling of are we progressing under Ferguson? Are we getting there? Are we getting going one step back? There's people like Ralph Milne were was saying were was signed, and right. but then yeah, but then they were like. Great players that we now know as great players that came in. So he got Steve Bruce from from Norwich. He brought yep. Harry Pallister in. And we didn't know at the time, but that would become a fulcrum of that team that started winning the Premier League in the early 90s. Paul Ince in midfield. Mark Hughes came back from Bayern Munich, where he'd been in Barcelona before that, to the, the club up front. And he, they got a spine together. And Ferguson pulled that together. Lee Sharp arrived as a, a youngster, as a teenager as well, who became a, a wing star for United. But it was interesting in retrospect to see that happening. And just wondering now, can I see that happening? Are Maguire and Lindelof going to be as good as Bruce and Pallister? Have we got the strikers that you can add Cantonar to with Mark Hughes to form a partnership? Have we got an out-and-out striker at United now? And I'm watching Romelu Lukaku banging goals at Inter Milan and thinking, you know, are we missing that you know, a little bit as well? Um, and is the midfield, with someone like Paul Lintz coming in to, to anchor that midfield, do we have anything comparable at the club at the moment? Or are we trying to sort of patch things up by playing two players where we needed one, like Freda McTominay, to cover a position where a really good central sure. midfielder like Roy Keane or Paul Ince could do that job on their own or a Makaleli or an, uh, an N'Golo Kante in the modern game. I don't know, what do you think? Because that's a, a big caveat with any analysis of Solskjaer, isn't it? It's is the calibre of the current eleven not only individually, but how they complement each other in a, in a team.
1: Yeah, it's um it's interesting. You mentioned Bruce and, and Ince and some other players there because even up until the selectrics and departure and Percy, United could go to even their biggest rivals in, in, in English football, Arsenal there, look at Carrick from Tottenham, Rio Fernand mm-hmm. from Leeds, you know, they, they would go and sort of cherry pick the best players, wouldn't they? And yeah. the recruitment side of things now is, you mentioned people like players like N'Golo Kante and Mares. I think that's the kind of market that Manchester United are in, not now for Mares and Kante, but when they first emerged and they were signed yeah. Um, and came on the radar for Leicester City. It's that kind of under the radar signing that are emerging. There's some real talent there, that, but perhaps haven't quite been picked up by the big boys. I do think there's money f- for signings, um, but but the eighty hundred million pounds that's been talked of for somebody like Jaden Sancho, I just don't think that that'll be spent. The message from Solsha, I think in, in his press conference, um, I think it was last month. Certainly, certainly recently, anyway, was that the it would be a similar sort of window to to last season. They spent mm. a bit of money, but there wasn't a great outlay on one superstar, which suggests to me that changing how their their approach to it, perhaps, you know, the Kante and Mares, when they were less of that calibre, would I said, but also to feed people through from the academy because they simply can't go and go and get a Jack Grealish for 80 or 90 million pounds. If, if Grealish was was perhaps 20, 30 million pounds cheaper, or you know, a Beek, price 40 million then yeah they'd, they'd look to do the deal but the days of Manchester United picking the best players not just from sort of Europe but even on these shores in the Premier League I think has gone so a complete yeah. different statistical based uh, look at recruitment and you know that next tier down I think really. It's,
0: it's You mentioned stats and there's, I think football is interesting because it, it definitely skewed more to the gut feel and the artistic side when we were kids and managers are sort of impulsive, they read a player and think, well, that fits into our system just by watching him. Maybe there wasn't the data available. But then I think wonder if that recruitment has gone a little bit the other way because of the fact you're buying a human being that's going to make a big impact. And I look at Bruno Fernandes and his stats have always been off the chart. Someone was talking about yeah. what he was doing in Portugal in terms of assists and goals from midfield for, for a significant number of years. And it was, it was obvious that he could maybe translate that. But he's been able to do that, A, because he speaks English. He's an effervescent character. There are intangible aspects of him that he just is a galvanising effect. It goes beyond his numbers, doesn't it? On the team, you can see he's infectious. As he's, He wants to run all day, probably plays too much because of, of, of that, maybe. But that is something that Ferguson was good at, wasn't it? it? was identifying character. And I wonder if this sort of you know protracted process of looking at numbers, maybe you lose that touch for a manager to say, actually, this is the character I need for, for the team. Do you agree with that? Because I think sometimes... I think Maguire's trying to lead from the back. I can see that. But maybe he's been undone because like Steve Bruce, he's got a lack of pace and he hasn't quite got the right partner in Lindelof that Bruce had in Palace. So maybe his leadership is diminished because he's not able to cover his own back enough. He's not able to lead from the front in performances. Um, but I do wonder that, you know, yeah, whether we have whether we have the characters yeah, there.
1: No, I think I think you're right. I think um when we always do compare to to past successful teams, but these successful teams bought United Trophies, of course. So you look at somebody like Gary Neville, mm. um, who whose character and sort of desire and leadership almost outweighed his ability as a footballer. Um, he was an in, he was an incredible leader on the pitch and was the first at training every day. If we we're led to you know, yeah, to him and the rest of the class of ninety two. People like David Beckham again, their character and their their work ethic was what what really set them apart as well. And I'm not suggesting that some of the United guys don't have that that work ethic because they wouldn't probably be at Manchester United if they didn't but the character and that desire within to, to, to kind of embrace it is is something completely different and people like Juan Sebastián Verón um, mm. other players Gary Bertle, if we're going to go back further didn't quite have that I wouldn't say character but they didn't have they didn't fit in properly to, to Manchester United in the way of playing for it didn't mean they weren't, weren't talented players so I think getting the character and the mentality of the person is 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 almost as important, or if not more important than the ability, because you can sign players. Wilfred Zaha, maybe yeah. wrong time for him to join United. Maybe if he'd have joined last season, it would have been a different story. More mature, uh, had a greater understanding of what was required for him. Tactically more astute uh, under the manager's work. So, character is, is 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 not everything. But it's it's if you haven't got that alongside that, especially to play for a team like Manchester United, then you, you'd you're going to struggle, I think. And Mm. I think what added to, if I can call another player out, and that's Yap Stam, is he had a real baptism of fire in a community shield against yes. Arsenal didn't yeah. he in
0: 1998.
1: And, that, and LK, yeah. yeah. And if he didn't have the, I guess, the strength of mind and character to overcome that, you know, world's most expensive defender, I think he was 10.75 billion at the time, which doesn't sound a lot now, but believe me at the time, it, it was a lot. He he, you know, he could have quite easily crumbled and it gone a different way for him. But he had that strength and that character, and, and what a player he turned out to be. I guess the same with Patrice Evra. Mm. Manchester Derby, I think he was he was hauled off at half-time in a torrid torrid afternoon, and he went on to be a, a great a great servant and a great player for Manchester United. So the character to deal with the pressure of, of playing for a, for a club like Manchester United and any of these top clubs now um, is really something you've got to be able to deal with.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I do think it's, it's it's not only about individuals, but how they complement each other. Like I say, I think Maguire and Lindelof is seemingly Solskjaer's preferred partnership. But could you get Eric Biy to, to to match up with Maguire? Would that be a better max, a match of, of attributes if they could long term? Because Biy's got that recovery pace, and Lindelof may work better with a different centre half alongside him as well. So it's 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 interesting how that that works and strike. You know, we don't have a regularised eleven like we did maybe back then. So you don't have a strike partnership. You have a front three that's interchangeable. So. It's hard to assess necessarily where, where we're going. What about the Europa League then? Do you think they can do it? Because Granada next. But it's a tricky one. I'm looking at the draw. If the winner of quarterfinal one, which is Granada, Manchester United, and Granada, I think, are eighth in La Liga at the moment, we would play the winner of Ajax versus Roma, which looks like that would be the hardest game. Then potentially you'd have Arsenal, though, in the final, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. the more I think about it, the more I think Solskjaer has got to probably win this with tournament. He's, he's got past uh, Sociedad, he's got past AC Milan, two very good teams. AC mm. Milan, I thought, were quite unlucky for the whole game at Old Trafford and probably for the first half in the San Siro. I thought you could argue they were perhaps a better team. Yeah. Um. And, and United turned it on in the second half when it really mattered. I think that the bigger the game, the better for Manchester United, but I think the teams you've, you've listed there, Um. I think the biggest test would probably be Arsenal if United could get to the final. Um, but even still then, with the season they've had, if you give United off a United final against Arsenal in the Europa League after the season they've had, and they have be very inconsistent as well. Um, I think that Social would take that. I think the United are in a fantastic position, no disrespect to Granada, but they should beat Granada and progress from that, um, from that game. And then a game against did you say Ajax and Ajax or Roma and Roma? Um, we've had some great games against both over the years, but I think that. You'd, you'd take that of the semi-final especially with, yeah. with the players United have and their route there so um, I, I dread to think really just given the reaction to the game on Leicester City what sort of reaction there would be on social media if United didn't go all the way I know that sounds like quite a, um, a strange thing to say given that we have no divine right to win anything but I just think for Solskjaer and his progress and, and the players coming out and saying we're on a path we know where we're going we're heading in the right direction I really feel that now with the FA Cup not on not on the table, I really feel that he needs to to try and win this, and and I think he's got a very good chance. But again, if he fails, there's always going to be that thing in in the supporters, and maybe even sometimes the players' minds yeah. if they can't get over that those final hurdles. And it's not easy. Again, it's not an easy thing to do. But he does seem to be taking United so far, which is which is promising. It's just that final bit now.
0: Yeah, and also it's that barometer, isn't it? If you, if you look at the league table, ultimately you say we can make progress, but if we finish second, the only progress you can make from there is first, and it's whether you can bridge that gap, because looking at the points, to, if City get into the 90s again, you, it's almost uncharted territory, even in the Ferguson era, isn't it, where Liverpool and City have taken that bar. Do you feel, or well, how many players would you need to, to, act, to get that kind of consistency to get to that level? What type of players would you need, and and what manager could do that? That's the question, isn't it? Who could secure that kind of consistency? Because there is a financial outgoing at Manchester United, some big signings, but also the the salaries are huge. So there is an expectation, you know, inconsistent with with the club's output. And I just wondered, do you have any thought on that? What players would be needed? And if Solskjaer wasn't there, who could, on the managerial front, get you up to that points total?
1: Yeah, um, I think Manchester United are are about great teams, but teams that had lots of goal scorers in them. Mm. And I think this season... If you take Bruno out of the equation, and yes, he scored a lot of, of penalties, Greenwood, who has improved performance wise in, in the last few weeks, Martial and Rashford don't seem to be hitting the same numbers that they did, say, 12 months ago.
0: Yeah, five goals them. for Greenwood, I saw all comps. That's amazing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you see, it, it, it's, it's strange. And, and, you know, he's entitled to have a season. He's still 19, I think, he's still developing. So that's, that's absolutely fine. But, um, people like Martial and, and Rashford and Rashford's numbers are probably, to be fair, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, they could be better, but I think they're pretty good this season. But Martial in particular, you probably expect more and Cavani has been fantastic but probably can't do three games in a week um, mm-hmm. as we'd like to and, and Cavani four or five years ago would be better. So, for me, United needs somebody who can play regularly and score goals, which sounds like the obvious <laughs> thing to suggest, but that they haven't had that this season. They, they simply haven't. And, one area I always think about United now when I when I see them play with the new style that or the the style that is trying to implement. If he plays with two defensive central midfielders, mm. say McTominay and Fred or Matic, I think teams have, have sort of found United out in many ways that if they sit back and don't allow space for Martial and Rashford to run into, and they can kind of nullify or reduce what Bruno does then the onus really is on the likes of Fred and McTominay to create something. And I don't think that's n- a natural for them to do. I think they're very good at winning the ball back. I think that yeah. Tommy in particular has improved with his distribution and playing it short into the likes of Bruno.
0: He but can I get a goal, can't he, occasionally, McTominay? He's got he that can ability, do it. Yeah. I think
1: he started as a, as a striker. He played further forward when he was, he was coming through the ranks. So maybe he can come in and chip in with a few more goals. But I think if teams are playing that low block, they're not giving space in behind. And Bruno's perhaps not having, you know, one of his... One of his best games, or that you know they're, they're managing to do a good marking job on him. I think more's required from those two players, and I always look at, oh, again, the best example: Iniesta, Xavi, and Busquets. Well, Busquets was a, a player who would play in a similar position to Fred and McTominay, but he could play football as well. He could pass yeah. the ball; he's capable of playing through the lines. And I think that United need a player. Look, you, you know, you're not going to get a Busquets, but United need a player who is better on the ball. Um, When teams have sat back and said, "Okay, come on, come at us. You're not going to break us. You're not going to hit us on the counter. We're not going to let you do that." But what, from a creative point of view, so what?
0: What what you don't realise at the time is it is because it looks simple because they make it look simple. Is the players and you mentioned those those trio for Barcelona, but you think about Roy Keane great passing stats actually when you looked on paper he was known as a sort of hard man but actually controlling the tempo of the game from that deep line central midfield position he would do that he'd ping it right left he'd just keep it and would happy taking the ball under pressure would retain possession then when he retired skulls dropped back into that kind of anchor role and then you had Michael Carrick as well and you, you you don't appreciate how good they are because they made it look simple and when you see Fred with that nervous mistake against Leicester they're giving the ball away under pressure with, with his back to goal that so, you realise it's, it's an invaluable skill, isn't it? And it's a, it's a mental one as well as a technical one, it's ability to stay calm under pressure.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think United, United can't buy everything that they need. It doesn't work like even under Sir Alex Ferguson, even Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, they're not going to get everything they need, every single window. It just just isn't going to happen. You know, you could argue Manchester United need a central defender and, uh, you know, they probably do need a more mobile central defender. If Tuunzebi or Baye could remain fit, I think the answer would be there to play along Lindelof or Maguire. Mm. But I think if you accept that the defence will remain the same, Luke Shaw has has come on and probably Manchester United player of the year this this season alongside um, Bruno. You accept the defence is going to be what it is. De Gea and Henderson are going to fight for the number one spot and you look up further up the field at what United are lacking as well and I think it is that central defensive midfielder who can, who can, can, can play a bit and also mm. a goal scorer who can, who can really get on that pitch on a regular basis and score United some goals because it's really what they've been lacking I think at times this campaign.
0: Yeah, no, I think you've hit a nail on the head and I think it's fascinating that Fred is nearly three years he signed in the summer of 2018 for £52 million so he's had three years to perhaps kind of create that role and hasn't quite happened and I think maybe you know it's interesting that that 50 million pounds is almost and you mentioned Donny van der Beek at 40 million he hasn't got much of a look in but it's it's almost a kind of 50 50 bet when you sign players for that kind of money which shows you the market and what the market will do I don't know what the market will do as well that's interesting Tom isn't it because of the depreciation of the pandemic this is going to hit hit businesses I was looking even at Adidas and Nike's revenue have been massively hit by the fact that amateur sports stop people aren't buying boots and equipment because of because I haven't been able to use them so it's, it's interesting the, the knock-on effects of that and what the market will be will it be a sort of blanket 40% dip or, and then that then you work out the market because I guess for a while there may be a sort of a feeling out period of we're working out where we are
1: I think so yeah I think we saw a bit of that last year you look at people like Barcelona Real Madrid um, not a lot of Big money was spent. I think Neymar at PSG as he recently extended his contract. That's been talked about. I always get the impression that I think somebody like Mbappe will end up at, at uh, Real Madrid. I just think he, he'll head that way eventually. Mm. Haaland is the, the big one on, on that everyone's talking about. Yeah. But you actually look around, who has got the money to spend? I don't think Manchester United have got the money for a player like Haaland. We've said that already. I'm not sure that Barcelona have at this particular point in time. Um Manchester City, although they they do spend in, in in the transfer market, I can't really remember them buying a, a ninety or hundred million pound player, or even spend as, as much as Manchester United spent on somebody like Paul Pogba. They certainly don't do it regularly anyway. So you've got to think that, especially with the pandemic, will play teams be looking at, at you know as, as twenty thirty million pounds being knocked off. Some of these players' prices, certainly in Harland, who would pay 150 billion for him? I mean, he'd be a great signing, and he'd be great, probably be money well spent. But yeah, doing it and finding it, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to sort of take, they have to sort of work out where the income's coming from the uh, different effects of the, the pandemic on different businesses and, and their revenue sources and what the what the hole has been for the the ticket sales as well. We, you know, that's what, I know it's relatively the Premier League clubs are cushioned by the sponsorships, but still, that's a huge amount of money that hasn't been coming in. To the clubs and to the La Liga clubs and Serie A clubs and Bundesliga clubs. So, yes, it's a complex picture. Tom, I appreciate your time. It's been awesome to catch up. We'll do it again soon, shall we? But ahead of the Euros as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep these coming. We should do more more often. But um, you're on Clubhouse as well,
0: are you? You're on the you're on the newfangled clubhouse i'm um,
1: trying i'm trying to get you on there with me i'm trying to get you,
0: on there with me. <laughs> so, you so, it's a cl- clubhouse for people who aren't a pre- it's a new app but it's basically audio based but it's almost like an instagram live or facebook live is it although you have to be invited to it is that correct
1: i believe so yeah and I, i'm not sure if you can record them in the same way so if, if people missed us i'm not sure they could delve back in i'm not not sure about that but um yeah. it's certainly worth a look at i think anyway
0: so you just have a live conversation and people sort of listen into it and then they perhaps right. like, yeah. chime in if they want to and things
1: it's like a live virtual event
0: yeah and it's interesting it's audio isn't it because sort of instagram and facebook have done that in video but maybe people like the the audio effect it's a little bit more um relaxed in a sense isn't it? you don't have to worry about your your hair and your look and That's stuff right. and right. <laughs> state of your bedroom tom great stuff i'll speak to you soon cheers Ed. thank you bud Great to get the thoughts of Tom McDermott. Follow him on Twitter, and I believe he's on Instagram now as well. Some interesting conversations, certainly on his uh, qu- uh, Twitter account, regarding Manchester United. How do you discern progress? And the interesting analogies that people like to use quite often, don't they, have sports people in to inspire businesses, but different in a sense that businesses, you can't consume yourself with the your opposition, and your success isn't necessarily defined or failure by what the opposition is doing, you can have a nice business in the high street and, and be very kind of respectful about what John Lewis may be doing or an international brand like Amazon and, and have reverence and respect. But the problem is, it's all relative in sport, isn't it? Particularly in leagues when you're trying to win a title, because it's accumulation of points. But some years that might win you the title, other years not. So, how do you discern what is a good season? For example, Leicester's scintillating underdog 5,000 to 1 win in the Premier League title race in 2016 was achieved with a low 80s point score. The problem is now that Manchester City seem destined again to get into the 90-point range. Liverpool and Manchester City have been there for several seasons now. So actually, the chances of an underdog winning it seems slightly difficult at the moment, unless there's a blip where the big boys have a a slight hiccup and don't get up to that 90-point total. But can Manchester United get there as well? That's the the question. And try to work out, are there seeds of, of progress? And interesting, this is the book I've recommended and Hayley McQueen, who's the daughter of Gordon McQueen, my fellow presenter at Sky Sports News. She's requested a copy of this from the author, Jamie McGill, M-A-G-I-L-L is his name, In Glory, Man United, Travels and Travails of a 1980s Red Devil. And so it's a friend, there's a picture of them winning the FA Cup, I think in 1983 there, the team shot, but Manchester United, as uh, Jamie grew up in the 80s, weren't as successful as they are now. And you did not know, but the success of the 90s was coming, of course. It had been a long time since they won the last league title in 67, that European Cup in 68. And it's just trying to glimmer retrospectively when they, when Ferguson started to sign players like Paul Ince and Gary Pallister, Steve Bruce, Mark Hughes came back to the club in the late 80s. In retrospect, it's easy to see those pieces coming together. Peter Schmeichel in 1991, the goalkeeper, and of course, Cantona, the final kind of uh, icing on the cake in terms of making United a, a title-winning side again in the 92 93 season but yeah if you enjoy this stuff it, it'd be an interesting book for you to read in glory man united and if you grew up in the 80s is jamie i think six or seven years older than me so i don't remember the early 80s or mid 80s but he does and it's i think it'd be a lot of resonance and empathy for you if you grew up in that era some of the cultural references about what people were eating the drinks the uh, sweets all that kind of stuff uh, so that's uh, jamie mcgill in glory man united travels and travails of a 1980s red devil follow tom on social media thank you for listening thank you to the sponsors Bang and olofson of cheltenham and serene av specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations and jason briggs is a manchester united fan of a similar vintage to jamie mcgill i'm going to drop this round I can fit it through his doorbox at Bangalore Cheltenham in the courtyard there, I will. Um, but yeah, thank you to Jason and his team. Appreciate their support. And if you are looking to optimize your immunity, supplements that we as a family, the Drapers, have been taking for 20 years are Cytoplan. the company based not far from here in the West of England, food-based supplements, so digested as food would be. Look at this complete, your trace element picture, selenium zinc. Zinc's been mentioned a lot, hasn't it, in the research around coronavirus and how, how people battle it off and vitamin D is in the immune complete multivitamin, multivitamin they offer as well. But if you go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, the discount code is DRAPER10R. DRAPER, all capital letters, D-R-A-P-E-R. The numbers one zero and the capital letter R. I believe you get 30% off your initial purchase, 10% thereafter. And uh, feel free to share that code with family as well. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. Goodbye for now.